Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, the place where we provide analysis and opinion on Australian politics and fill in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, everyone else is talking about it, so will we. The coronavirus. How is it going to affect the economy and the federal government? Breaking caretaker convention during elections. Does it really matter anymore? And is the media starting to turn against Scott Morrison? We think it is. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Trades Ambassador to Antarctica. Unless people have been hiding in a Petri dish over the past few weeks, everyone would know about the coronavirus that has now been found in over 100 countries around the world. There hasn't been a run on the banks yet, but in scenes reminiscent of The Walking Dead, there has been a run on toilet paper and essential supplies in many supermarkets, and face masks have become the most common body wear in many cities. It is a real national health crisis and great care does need to be taken, but it's fast becoming an economic issue and a political headache for the federal government. Scott Morrison was the one who announced a budget surplus in the lead up to the last election and claimed that superior Liberal Party economic management would be able to withstand any external influences. The economy was facing problems before the onset of the bushfire season and now the coronavirus, and it's likely Morrison will have the recession Kevin Rudd managed to avoid during the global financial crisis in 2009. What will this government end up with? A surplus with a recession or a deficit that at least props up the economy? I keep hearing that the Rudd government made mistakes in its stimulus. I don't hear what mistakes they made. You hear vague things like, oh, they spent too much. Yet I don't think that the GFC was fully comprehended here because we missed it. The Ken Henry directive of go hard, go early, go households has been shown to be the absolute correct way to do things. Australia was one of only three countries to avoid the GFC. Other countries, of course, were nearly destroyed because of it. That's how bad it was. Greece springs to mind. Iceland ends up sending its bankers to jail. Britain doesn't really recover. America is still in many ways recovering from it. So if someone can tell me where they went wrong in avoiding a recession, I would like to see facts and figures, not opinions. The Morrison government and the Turnbull government and the Abbott government prided themselves on being better economic managers and that their measure for better economic management was surplus. Now, surplus economic management is fine, but deficit economic management is also fine. It's all on how do you spend it and what do you do with it, um, as has been pointed out. And I, I don't like this analogy, but it's a true one. Anyone with a mortgage runs at a deficit unless you have uh, assets greater than the value of your mortgage, which few people do. Coronavirus might be seen as another one of Scott Morrison's miracles as they'll be able to blame the effects of the coronavirus on not being able, and the bushfires, on not being able to deliver the surplus that they so wish, while blaming Labor. Well, Scott Morrison does seem to be spooked by the actions of the Labor Party during the global financial crisis. Now, that, that was over a decade ago, but in late 2008, at the beginning of the crisis, um, Labor did release a stimulus package of around $10 million that was paid into pensions and direct payments to low and middle income families. Miraculously, that seems to be very similar to what the Liberal government of today is doing. Labor went one step further a few months after that. They released a package of $42 billion, which included the building, the education revolution, the home insulation program, further one-off payments to families as well, and small business tax breaks. But the Liberal Party, back in 2008-2009, after Labor did release their 
stimulus package. They did spend the best part of the next decade, and they're still going on about it now, arguing that the Labor Party got it all wrong with its stimulus spending, even though Australia avoided recession and many people kept their jobs. And Morrison today, he's now choosing his terminology very carefully. He's using the terms support package rather than stimulus. He's avoiding all references to the budget surplus, even though he was so keen to talk about it before the last election. And what I'm here today to announce is that before we go to the next election, we will be handing down a budget. And it will be a surplus budget, a balanced budget, a surplus budget, which is what we promised the Australian people we would do. It is absolutely our intention to have the budget before the election and to deliver a surplus budget. A surplus budget that we promised that we would deliver, a surplus budget that we will deliver. Instead of doing the right thing by the economy, the Liberal Party approach seems to be waiting around and taking on a go soft, go late and go business approach, which of course is the opposite of what Labor did during the GFC. Morrison has been downplaying the effects of the GFC, trying to make it seem like it was nothing like the problems he's now facing, when in fact the GFC was far worse and far more prolonged. In a sense, Australia is like the spoiled brat who's been given everything and who doesn't understand that the kids down the road genuinely don't have money when it comes to the, the, the GFC. Because we didn't get it, we didn't feel the effects. And of course, a media that is so concentrated hid the effects from the rest of the world so they could hammer the Labor government at the time. There's a part of me that wants to say that the wrong people, in the view of the current government, the wrong people got the money, that it should have gone straight to the pockets of Jerry Harvey, who was a huge critic at the time. Jerry Harvey did not comprehend that he ended up getting quite a lot of that money because people went and bought TVs and lounge suites from his shop and refrigerators. We paid down a fair bit of private debt, which is a good thing. Now, I, as I understand it, one of the things that Scott Morrison has said is that he's going to give New Start and pensioners a $500 bonus. This is a good start, but it won't be enough. He's going to pay half of apprentices' wages till the end of the year. Again, it's hard to say, oh, you shouldn't do that. That's, that's not a bad thing. The only thing is it won't be enough. You need to flood a lot of money into the economy. And these are people who spend less anyway because they have less. Uh, this is not a criticism or a, this is just a statement of fact. You need to get those people helped, definitely. Credit where it's due. You also need to get more money flooding through. Money floats upwards. It'll get into the pockets of his, of his mates. It'll be a bit filtered and it'll take a little while longer. Sending it straight to the top means you'll never see it again. So there was great opposition to the Labor stimulus package back in 2008 and nine, And that, as I mentioned, the, the criticisms of that program went on for the best part of the decade. But it wasn't just coming from the Liberal and the National Party. It was actually coming from the right-wing media as well. Barely a week went by before there'd be a story that was breaking in The Australian about some sort of misappropriation of payment or management of funds within the building the education revolution. They had great criticisms about school halls. Now, there's a lot of schools out there that have got halls that they'd never actually had before. They've got quadrangles and uh, colas that they've never actually had before. And 12 years later, those halls are still there. They're still being used by those schools and they're a great community resource. So it seems like there were a lot of criticisms about what Labor 
did at that time. But many economists agree that that was the right course of action. It kept Australia out of recession. It kept people in jobs. And that's a very important thing to do. If I can go all right-wing Sydney radio for a second, I think a lot of people need to have a recession just to understand what one is. We, we haven't really had one for, since the early 90s. And a lot of people don't know what it's like to have that shortage of cash. I think both you and I are old enough to remember the last one. And I mean, as kids of the 90s, we can't say we, we had a terrible time in, you know, compared to the 1890s depression or the 1930s depression. But it's still pretty rough. People were getting retrenched everywhere, job cuts everywhere. Uh, they clamped down on social security. Prices went up because there was more demand and less money coming in. It was pretty rough. And if you were running a small business, it was almost impossible. Well, it was a difficult time for many people. The recession continued from 1990 up until the end of 1991. These were difficult times, but the combination of the reforms that were made leading up to the recession and the recession itself laid the platform for a much stronger economy and a recession-free period for almost 29 years. And we haven't had recession-like conditions since that time, although we have come close on a few occasions. Technically, a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth, although it feels like we are already in a recession. We just avoided one part of the equation. The December 2019 quarter showed growth in GDP of just 0.5%. Now, that's a sign of a spluttering economy, especially in the context of a Christmas retail spending period. Since then, we've had the effects of bushfires, a downturn in spending and retail, and of course the coronavirus issue. So the March quarter, when it ends, will probably have negative growth, and the June quarter reporting when it comes out will probably show a negative growth figure as well. And there you have the recession. Sometimes what we see and what we feel as consumers within the economy can mask what the actual economic performance is, but so far it's not looking very good at all. Mm. I'll call it luck that Scott Morrison seems to have in that he'll be able to blame the coronavirus. And certainly it's it's a factor. Like He'll be able to blame the bushfires. The fact that he's handled them not great, he'll avoid, of course. And it'll be interesting to see how the media deals with it. As a politician, and especially as a Prime Minister, you have to create your own luck and exploit that as much as possible. That's the nature of politics. Scott Morrison does exploit any situation politically, and partially I think that's where his problems arise. He doesn't handle a crisis very well, and his natural instinct is to score political points. And he gets lost when he's in a position where he can't do that. During the time of the Christchurch massacre last year, he was lost for words because it was an inopportune time to attack Labor, and it went against his natural instinct. Again, during the bushfires, he went on the attack against climate change action and attacks against the Labor Party, but that's not what the public wanted to hear. The electorate expects the Prime Minister to face up to adversities and rise above the fracas of day-to-day politics and point scoring. Perhaps Morrison has learned from his mistakes in the past, but still he's been equivocating on coronavirus action, and it seems like he's more concerned about making sure he can go to the football over the weekend. It, it took him a few days. His first few press conferences, he was racing his words, he was struggling for words, and he didn't seem across the subject at all. He has calmed down somewhat, but he's not the person you want in a crisis. And I'm thinking back again of our last 
six prime ministers or so, even if you despise John Howard, if this type of thing had happened, there'd be a part of you that, no, yes, well, we're in fine hands. He'll be listening to the health department. He may have cut the health department, but he would give that steady hand required. I'm not sure about Tony Abbott. Malcolm Turnbull, probably. Kevin Rudd, definitely. Julia Gillard, yes, definitely. Before then, Paul Keating, Bob Hawke, Malcolm Fraser. Most prime ministers are able to at least, even if behind doors they're panicking and crying, most prime ministers seem to be able to um, publicly handle a, a crisis in a way that Scott Morrison hasn't really although yeah, he's getting better, and that might give him somewhat of a public lifeline. And of course, this might be the turning point where he actually grows into being a prime minister worthy of the title. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the breaking of caretaker conventions and what it means for democracy. issue that keeps popping up and just when the government hoped that the scandals from the sports funding program might disappear from the public domain, another reference to it appears in Senate estimates to remind the electorate just how corrupt the entire program was. The revelations about the amount of funds that were diverted to marginal seats in the lead up to the last election were made a few months ago, but there are new details about how funding was released after the election was announced and during the time that the government had moved into caretaker mode. Now, it might not seem like a big deal, but why is the caretaker convention so critical? When an election is called, essentially all positions are um, declared vacant. So technically for the three or six weeks of an election, we don't have a prime minister, except we have the nominal prime minister who still has to do the uh, day-to-day work of prime minister. So if there's a a diplomatic issue or a trade issue or a, a national emergency Whoever is the prime minister at the time still gets to do that job, although he or she is not prime minister. He or she is just essentially acting in the role. And that makes the convention more understandable. As many of those listening know, when someone's acting in the role of your supervisor, they don't get to do all the things that the supervisor, you don't get the full responsibility. You get some so that if something goes wrong, you can continue doing the work required, but you don't get all of it. So announcing new policy to be put in at the time is wrong. Spending up beyond what is necessary is wrong. Using your political advantage as the acting incumbent is wrong. It also gives the opposition a chance to state their case as well for election. And this is as it should be. I mean, even if you agree with the government of the time, you want fair elections that allow all sides to have their say in a fair and, and, and balanced way. The caretaker convention, it's, it's not a law, it's a protocol, and it's essential for a functioning democracy to adhere to these protocols. And when there's a government that sails so close to the wind legally, it becomes even more essential to stick to these protocols. 
And because these conventions are not law, the only repercussions that exist for governments and ministers who break these conventions are political rather than legal repercussions. The Queensland Adani mine was announced by Campbell Newman during the Queensland election campaign, which saw him lose office quite severely. It didn't stop the procedure of the mine. The mine hasn't gone ahead yet, and there's all kinds of theories as to whether it will or won't, and we've discussed them on this podcast before, and I think pretty much now it's anybody's bet as to whether it will. It's generally the liberal side of politics who break the convention, not always. It comes out of, of course, the British system. And Australia's been very good at taking parts of the British system it likes and quietly removing the stuff it doesn't like. Well, it is ironic how these conventions, which have all come from the Westminster system, are being smashed by conservative governments. They'll go to all lengths to protect conservative institutions such as the monarchy or the constitution, but they're quite happy to break these long-standing conventions. But essentially, for me, it relates to accountability and responsibility, and in this case, there are no repercussions. In the sport funding scheme, which now involves the former sports minister, Bridget McKenzie, and the prime minister, grants were amended and approved 15 minutes after the election was called. Now, we could say, well, 15 minutes is not such a big deal, but where do you draw the line? How about the day after or the day after that or even next week? The only punishment here has been Bridget McKenzie losing her ministerial position and there's also been an attempt at a censure by the Senate. Now, Eric Abetz in the Senate, trying to be ever so helpful, he suggested that McKenzie shouldn't be censured at all because she was unaware she lacked the legal authority to authorise these funding applications and she was even unaware that funds could be altered after the election was called. Now, forgive me if I'm wrong about this, but you'd assume the people that we put into Parliament would be competent enough to know the limitations of their powers, especially ministers of the Crown, and it does go to the heart of some of the problems of this government. There are members of parliament that don't know what their job descriptions are and they're not quite sure how to do their jobs with competence. And for a minister to suggest that they didn't fully understand their obligations is a total misunderstanding of the role of parliament. I'm wondering, and this is pure thought experiment with no real theoretical underpinning to it, but I'm wondering if we're moving away from a 20th century mode of government into a 21st century mode of government and we need to rethink how parliament is done. And my approach would be firmer laws. Protocol is starting to break down. It's a paper, paper thin. And we see this in Britain, we see it in the United States. If you ignore the protocols, there are no consequences. And government does need to have some sort of flexibility in the way that it operates, but there are limits to what parliamentarians should be able to do. Now, there was one other issue that just popped up the other day, and it was the day before the election was announced that the government made a $4 million act of grace payment Now, this was the day before the election was called, and there are no details about this payment. The Prime Minister has refused to answer questions about it. The file is secret, and there's no freedom of information access. Apparently, he's formed a cabinet in confidence committee thing in which he is the only member, which means that you can talk to him and he doesn't have to, because it's all cabinet in confidence. This is not good. And if you have lots of things to hide, People wonder what it is you're hiding. I'm pretty sure it's not, you know, Christmas twice a year and free money for everyone. 
Just after the 1972 election, Gough Whitlam and Lance Barnard created a two-person cabinet. That was necessary, though, at the time. The election was held close to Christmas time. The counting of the votes hadn't been completed, so they weren't sure which Labor members had finally won their seats, and they weren't sure who was going to be part of the cabinet. So it was an anomaly, but it made sense at the time. This time around, to set up a one-person cabinet committee is quite unusual, We do have to point out that Scott Morrison will have other people on this cabinet committee, but he is the only permanent member. But still, it's a very unusual arrangement. Whitlam and Barnard still operated as a cabinet. There was still transparency and most of its criticism was from members of the Labor Party who felt they should have been involved. And as Whitlam said, it was only ever a temporary thing. Yeah, politically, it probably wasn't the smartest movie ever made. But then again, they were they were people in a hurry with a lot to do, and it got things going. We have almost the exact opposite in Scott Morrison, in that he's not in a hurry and he doesn't want to do anything. He believes that government should be broken down and and removed. So a $4 million act of grace payment that we know absolutely nothing about except for the amount of $4 million and the fact that it was made the day before the election was announced last year. It's a continuing theme within this government. We've brought it up in the past. They love their secrecy. This act of grace payment is similar to the $30 million that was given to Foxtel in 2016. We still don't know how that money was used. The government still refuses to release any details about it. They've just been stonewalling for four years about this. Journalists sometimes bring it up. They'll ask it every two or three months, but they'll get the same response, that it's all in the past. We don't need to worry about that. It was under a different prime minister. But will we ever find out what this $4 million act of grace payment is all about? So much money going to people who, or to organisations that it's hard to justify. If he said, yes, I'm giving $4 million to a women's shelter, and we know he's cut women's shelter, or Indigenous Lands Council, it would be harder for his critics to ping him on a lack of transparency because his critics see these things as worthy things. But we know they're not going there. It's gone off the front pages, but it hasn't gone away. The whole uh, Scott Cam appointment is another example. Now, Scott Cam suddenly found a newfound burst of energy and is running around going to TAFEs and speaking to people, arguing that, well, while the job started in November, TAFEs was shut during summer, which seems a bit disingenuous because why would you start the job in November knowing that you wouldn't be able to do a lot of the work? Now, if they'd rolled out with a whole range of ads and documents and proposals and that had obviously been done in the summer, you'd say, okay, well, yes, he's earning his money in that kind of way. But again, we don't know what it is he's supposed to do. He's done four social media posts. Those of you who follow us on Twitter know that Eddie and I can do that in 20 minutes some days. And he turned up the other day uh, somewhere looking quite uncomfortable, as did John Alexander, while Michaelia Cash praised him. It also gets back to what sort of resonance these types of issues will have within the public and within the electorate, because ultimately they're the ones that decide whether a government stays or go. It's a question of how concerned they are or how much they know about this $4 million act of grace payment. It's a question of how much they know or how much they think about the $30 million payment given to Foxtel or $345,000 given to a celebrity such as Scott Camp for doing not very much. So, But it does seem like we have reached a point where conventions and protocols don't seem to be relevant anymore. And 
If there isn't a law to stop them from doing so, this is a government that will break long-established standards of behaviour, whether they're in government or in caretaker mode. Yeah, and it creates very dangerous precedents. The paper-thin convention, you know, that the head of state in Australia does not interfere outside of the Prime Minister's advice. We've seen that broken twice, actually, once in 1932 with the Lane government, once in 1975 with the Whitlam government. And we can argue whether that was justified or not, and that's an argument for another time. Imagine if you start getting the Governor-General deciding that the elected government of Australia was not doing its job and used his constitution or her constitutional powers to mobilise the army for a coup. Now, this is highly unlikely, but given what we've seen, it's not out of the question anymore. Ten years ago, we'd have thought, that's completely incredible. Now, I don't think the current Governor-General is going to do that for all kinds of reasons. But when you look at these types of rules and conventions, you have to look at what's the worst case scenario. And the worst case scenario is a populist governor general acting in such a way in which he or she thinks is appropriate and tearing the whole edifice down. Well, we did have that large constitutional crisis back in 1975 where there was quite a lot of um, interaction between the opposition leader of the day, Malcolm Fraser, and the governor general, John Kerr. I hope that things have changed since since that time and we won't see a Governor-General that decides to take control of the military forces and enable a coup, but we live in very strange times. It happens in Thailand every five years or so. Fiji, you know, on and on it goes. Donald Horn's The Lucky Country, in which he said, we're lucky, it's a third-rate country run by second-rate people or something, and we've been very lucky that it's worked out so far. The luck could change. And given the panic we've seen, people fighting over toilet paper, the luck may run out. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, it's only been a slight shift, but we think that the media tide is slowly starting to turn against Scott Morrison. There has been a slight change in the way the mainstream media has been dealing with Scott Morrison in 2020. And after all the support they seem to offer him, both as a new Prime Minister in 2018 and in the lead-up to the 2019 election, the combination of his poor management of national emergencies, misleading the public and simply not answering questions has started a slow turning of the tide against Scott Morrison. Morrison's media management strategy is very similar to the strategy used by former Queensland Premier Joe Bielke-Peterson mislead, fabricate stories, not answer questions, or divert all the attention back onto the Labor Party. It's easier to do this in state politics that has a much smaller focus of attention, but it's always more difficult to hide from poor political performance on the national stage, and reality always does have the habit of catching up, even if it does take a little bit of time. Journalists are detecting Morrison's low level of competence and are starting to take him to task over breaking long-established protocols and conventions, not answering questions and telling open-faced lies. Morrison is strong on deflection and avoiding accountability and responsibility, and this makes him a very difficult politician to lay a glove on. But the electorate expects Prime Ministers to stand up in the face of adversity and at least be a little bit above playing political games. Is he slowly being found out? 
For a PR guy, he's not terribly good at the role, and the public record reflects this. He's good at coming up with a quick three-word slogan. Whether the slogan is any good is a whole other issue. We've said this before. He lacks substance. He lacks thought. He doesn't cope in a crisis. He lacks gravitas. He's untrustworthy. And he still has his defenders, of course. Most prime ministers do. A lot of people are happy for the prime minister to be whomever, provided that their own way of life isn't affected too much. Heading towards what seems to be an inevitable recession, that's going to change a whole lot of figures, a whole lot of opinions. I think, too, there's a business model in the papers turning on him. Apart from journalists actually doing their job and holding senior members or holding the government and the opposition to account, I think with the the fatally falling media consumption numbers, the press has realised that defending these unpopular figures may not work for them anymore and that they might be better siding with that majority of people who don't like them in the hope that that majority of people start buying newspapers, start watching television, start listening to news radio again. Now, we have detected quite a few flaws within the performance of Scott Morrison as Prime Minister. The former leader of the Liberal Party, John Hewson, He came out recently to say that on just the average day, Scott Morrison will not deal with problems, but he'll come out with a three-word slogan. And if it's a good day, he'll come out with a four-word slogan. And we have been critics of Scott Morrison for, for some time. We feel that journalists are starting to detect those issues within Scott Morrison. But yet, for all of his flaws, he did win the last federal election in May 2019. And according to recent polls, now we know that there's a lot of issues with polling, given what happened at the last election, but still within recent polls, he's actually preferred Prime Minister over Anthony Albanese, the Labour Party leader. So obviously he's doing something right. We see it differently to the way that the rest of the electorate is seeing it. A lot of the electorate aren't reading newspapers, aren't listening to news radio. I heard an interesting statistic the other day that radio is still 70% coverage. So new most people are still picking up, and this is across all ages, most people are still picking up new songs through radio, not through Spotify or through Apple Music or through uh, YouTube, but radio. But they're not listening to news radio. People like Alan Jones and Ray Hadley remain popular but only in terms of a small radio audience. In a city the size of Sydney, which was five and a half or six million people, it's something like 120,000 listening to Alan Jones, the number one, which is nothing. And then underneath that, the other 15 or 20 radio stations get the rest. But because it's spread over 15 or 20 radio stations, it's quite a lot of people listening in small bursts, but mostly listening to music. Just to head back, I think the press can only go so long without being critical. And I don't mean in terms of, oh, the press always turn critical, but I think they're starting to realise the consequences of supporting someone who's really not supportable in that way. The open corruption can't be hidden. There were reports of, in the bushfires, press being turned away. And this is not just commercial press, but the ABC as well, from bushfire headquarters, etc., in local areas, because it was the press and they couldn't be trusted. So I think the press is probably now starting to rethink how it's done things. The big issue, of course, remains the Canberra Press Gallery, which I think should be broken up. Of course, you need journalists, but I would have a five-year maximum and then 
you get rotated out because you get groupthink, you get lazy thinking, you get opinions formed by listening to the same 10 or 15 people, all of whom are part of the, quote, Canberra bubble. And it's, it's just not effective anymore, if it ever was. Well, Scott Morrison doesn't seem to handle the media pressure very well. The way that I see him is that he's a front runner. When things are going well, he's fine. If he gets a tough question, he'll divert that or start talking about something something else. But when he's put under serious pressure, he tends to fluster quite a lot. You won't release the Gaetchen's report into the sports rorts. Your office tried to conceal when you're on holidays in Hawaii in December. The government cited national security to avoid answering a question under FOI about whether Pastor Brian Houston was invited to a White House dinner, although you've finally admitted this afternoon that he was invited. Why all the secrecy on stuff that on the surface would seem to be not that big a deal? Well, th those things aren't that big a deal that you've talked about, Lee. And but, I'm but always why the focused on the then? Lee, I'm just focused on the, on the things that I took to the Australian people. No, no, and I, I just know, I know the secrecy. That, You're not answering Lee, what I'm asking. Lee, well, I've, I've disclosed the issues re you've referred to. So, I mean, in relation to one of those matters, I mean, I could have been more candid at the time about it. I wish I was, but frankly, it wasn't a big deal. But you want, I we mean, go back to this, the trust this, question. This town, you want Australians to trust you. Does this excessive secrecy help that? No, I, I don't accept. I don't ex accept the assertion you're putting to me, Leah. I mean, you're making accusations. I just gave um, three like, examples. Like the Labor, like the Labor Party no, no, does. I gave and, you three and, concrete no, examples. Yeah, th these these are, are minor matters, Lee, that I don't think go to the issues you're talking but about. That's, but that's if you want if you want to join in on no. the accusations that the Labor leader makes in Parliament every day, well, you can join I'm in. I'm not interested in what the Labor leader's got to say. I'm well, putting to a, you three examples. There's an uncanny resemblance between I'm the allegations, Lee. I'm putting to you three Lee. examples where there has been. So in that short section, Morrison doesn't like a question from Lee Sales, so he accuses her of siding with the Labor Party. He's run out of room to deflect, to obfuscate. So he makes a claim to the journalists that they've got a bias against them and doing the work of the opposition. It's a technique Malcolm Turnbull also used, but it's definitely an old technique used by Joe Bielke-Peterson. And there have been other small movements in the media too. Peter Van Onselen from Channel 10, he's been running many high-pressure stories about the sports fraud scandals and other corruption performed by the government. And for all of his efforts, the Sydney Morning Herald has made the claim that Channel 10 is now a left-wing outlet. These are old terminologies, but we also had the spectacle of Peter Dutton labelling extremist fundamentalists as left-wing and the Liberal Senator, Conchetta Fiorenti-Wells, feeling insulted when she was referred to as right-wing. People just don't seem to know who they are anymore. I think with Conchetta, she's gone so far right, she's come back round to the left. <laughs> I, certainly the term left and right-wing is problematic in a post-Cold War world, whereas before left, there was a definite centre now you have people who socially might consider left-wing. They're, they're in favour of drug liberalisation. They're in favour of non-censorship. They're in favour of gender equality, etc. But on the other hand, they're quite authoritarian and quite right-wing when it comes to economics. And then you've got quite people who you'd think would be right-wing. They are opposed to all those types of things that, but are quite radical or quite small L liberal in, in terms of economics. So I think the old left-right paradigm is breaking down. I think it's still probably fairly useful in terms of giving a good rough idea of where you stand on particular topics, but I, I don't think it works as well as it did. It was from the French 
parliament originally where the more the people who wanted more change sat on the left side of the chamber and the people who wanted less change sat on the right side of the chamber. Well, also, society has become a lot more complicated since the French Revolution. It's become a lot more complicated over the past 30 or 40 years. Those left-right labels will still exist and still be applied for some time, but the community now fits along a four-way shift of liberalism versus authoritarianism, communitarianism versus individualism, and there's all these different lines of political thinking that pick up pockets in each of these different areas. There's been a few attempts. Our thinking always tends to dualism, where it's one or the other, but our actions tend to be much more complex than that. It's almost quantum in the way that we approach things. And there's a whole range of reasons for that. We live in a far more diverse society than we ever have. And so you get a whole range of opinions coming in that wouldn't have come in before. And that complicates things. Now, this is a good thing, by the way. I'm not criticising this at all. This This is a great thing. But it changes things. And Peter Dutton claiming that Al-Qaeda or that Islamic terrorism was a left-wing movement, given the terrorists' approach to women's rights, workers' rights, religion, law, by any standard, it's right-wing. Of course, that's Peter Dutton trying to use his power of language to divert an argument over something else. The media did turn against former Prime Minister Tony Abbott quite rapidly. He was in office for just on two years, but Abbott kept on making mistake after mistake. And once the media realised that we had a dud of a Prime Minister that really wasn't going to be doing very much, they scrutinised him far more deeply than they had in the past and turned on him very, very quickly. Now, looking into our crystal ball, there, there is an election due in 2022, but given what we've seen recently... Will we still have a world in two years' time? I'm 100% sure that we will. There is a lot of thinking going on at the moment that suggests that if the government does have a poor economic performance over the next 18 months or so, well, that's going to be kryptonite for it when it comes up to the next election. But we, all, we do have to remember that Paul Keating won the 1993 election mm. during the time of recession, poor economic performance and 11% unemployment. So it's not always just about economic matters. There are all other things that come into play during a during a federal election. But yeah, it's just a question of whether Scott Morrison will be the one that's that's there. It's probably a little bit too early to start talking about leadership change. Tony Abbott was in the position for two years. Yeah. Malcolm Turnbull was in the position for three years. It's coming up to two years for Scott Morrison. Let's see what happens. I think coronavirus has probably saved him a little bit in that there's enough instability. So anyone who might be agitating Peter Dutton is probably not going to at the moment because you just don't want to, one, you don't want to take over at such a time anyway. But two, it's not going to help anyone to bring in further instability and and uncertainty. Having said that, politicians are ambitious This is true of everyone, whether you're Adam Bant in the Greens or Pauline Hanson of One Nation and everyone between those two extremes. Between those two points, every single politician has some form of ego, some form of ambition, which means that if you are in the top job, you've got to be continually on your toes and watching and ready to deal with not just the external crises, but internal ones. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. And you can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. 
I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks to everyone and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.